Number one, love God. Number two, love neighbor. Number three, have fun. <laughs> I like that. Our scripture reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 to 46. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question, What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Now, God, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and redeemer. Amen. In every generation, there are those defining words that shape how we express ourselves in the world. I don't pretend to know what those words are today. I'm not hip. I just know that growing up, one of those words for me was awesome. Everything was awesome. That movie, that haircut, that football game, it was all awesome. And as everything became awesome, nothing did. Quickly, it became overused. What once was a rich word soon deflated, falling flat and becoming something more akin to nice. Few people these days hear the word awesome and get that spine-tingling sense of wonder, surprise, or astonishment that it once gave. Sitting in the presence of God, watching a bush aglow with flames, yet not burn or be consumed, now that, that is awesome. It is breathtaking. Moses has every right to use this word in this astounding experience. Jesus emerging from the tomb after laying dead for three days? That is awesome. Me trying the new pizza place that just opened on Gay Street and calling it awesome? Not so much. It just isn't the same. And so it's become a dull word. It doesn't have the same impact that it was initially intended for. I have no doubt that we have similar words in our language that have a rocky reputation these days, yet I fear that it could be said of the most precious word for our faith today, a word that Jesus used to define, define his mission and his identity, a word he tells us that all the law and prophets hang on, 
a word I'm sure you can guess now, that word, love. In our scripture reading from Matthew's Gospel, the Pharisees asked Jesus yet another test question. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus' answer falls off his lips without a moment's hesitation. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest in first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Up to this point in chapter 22, Jesus is still in the temple being endlessly questioned by the Pharisees and Sadducees. These religious leaders are confounded by this man, asking him question upon question, seeking to trap and discredit him. He has gained too much power, and they are afraid of his growing influence. Last week we heard about Jesus asking about taxes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But now the religious leaders are bringing out the big guns, asking Jesus the big question. What is the greatest commandment? And they sit back and they wait and hope that he will flounder or say something inappropriate. But as we know, Jesus answers it correctly, not missing a word or a beat. Love God with everything you've got. Your heart, soul, and mind with every fiber of your existence. This is the commandment. Now, practicing Jews would have recited this twice daily, so it's not a hard question for Jesus. He's not creating a new commandment, but lifting up that which has always been true. He is succinct and without further commentary. Theologian Debbie Thomas writes, Remember, at this point in the story, Jesus' crucifixion is just days away. Death is literally breathing down his neck, and he is rapidly running out of opportunities to communicate the heart of his message. But when he is asked what matters most in a life of faith, Jesus doesn't say, believe the right things. He doesn't say, maintain personal and doctrinal purity. He doesn't say, worship like this or attend a church like that. He doesn't even say, read your Bible or pray every day or preach the gospel to every living creature. He says love. That's it. All of Christianity distilled down to its essence so that maybe we'll pause long enough to hear it. Love. But Jesus' answer doesn't stop with loving God, as we know. In the same breath, he adds a second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. He intertwines these two commandments, making them inexplicably tied to each other. If we want to love God, we must love each other. In loving each other, we are loving God. This leaves the Pharisees in silence, his words adding a weight to them that they themselves find lacking. We cannot be reminded too often of these great commandments, simple in word yet powerful. Too often we tend towards the messier, complicated avenues. We're prone to use too many words and not enough actions. All this rhetoric and vitriol about 
you name it. Israel, Gaza, Speaker of the House, politics, disasters, all this is just noise pollution unless it leads to love disrupting it and building something out of it. So what does our identity as the people of God lead us to do in love? Not to say, but to do. When do we finally move away from our phones and our computers, put away the social media and news, and look into the eyes of those around us who are suffering and see them as worthy of God's love, reflective of God's image, knowing that we too are worthy of being that image of God, and we work to help each other realize it. Love is our base function, writes theologian Chelsea Harmon, what it means to be image bearers of God. If we were only given one word to describe the message of the prophets and of all the laws given to God's people, then according to Jesus, that word is love. Love towards God, love towards other. others is world building, just as God designed. Because we fail through sin, God gave us the law and the prophets to invite us back. All of the law and the message of the prophets were for the same end, building and keeping the world the way God wills it to be. So what is it that we are building? Or have we built an insular, contained world around ourselves, much like those Jesus was speaking to? Is our love tangible in this world, or has love become another hollow word? In a time when words are thrown like hand grenades, when beliefs and opinions are spewed without concern, when politics and polarization further divide and separate us, as the people of God, we are grounded in our identity to embody Christ's love to cease the vitriol and become what Cornell West calls love on legs. I love that. We move past the self-centered version of love that we've constructed from our culture. One says that if we, we can find love, if we buy this product, use this app, look like this person, feel complete if we do this thing. When we claim love as the greatest commandment, we aren't claiming a feeling but we are claiming an active way of being in this world and relating to each other. Feelings aside, active love is so hard to do. It is something that we must practice and exercise, perhaps even a muscle that we must learn how to build and strengthen over and over and over again if we believe that love is our calling as God's image bearers. Love on legs moves past emotion and into the dirt and grime of the world where we find Jesus most readily. Then it becomes expansive and generative, world-building, no matter how small our actions are. Thomas again writes, we cannot love God in a disinfected, disembodied way that doesn't touch the dirt and depth of this world. Our love is meant to be robust and muscular, hands-on and intimate, reaching into skin and bone and blood and tears. 
Lutheran minister Clayton Smith writes this, to love our God with all our heart, mind, and soul seems nearly impossible when we think of love as an emotion. How does one conjure up feelings for something as remote, mysterious, and disembodied as the concept of God? We cannot look into God's eyes, wrap our arms around the spirit, or even see the face of Jesus. Likewise, loving our neighbor is difficult. If love is merely our passive response to the person next to us, we are more likely, more often, to be repulsed than moved to love. How can one legitimately look into the face of an enemy and feel unqualified love? It is nearly impossible. But biblical love is not passive. It is not something that occurs to us without our control or will. Biblical love is something we do. God's love walks on legs through us. And where do our legs need to be leading us now? Where might we experience God's love outside the spheres that we have built around ourselves? And so I leave you with one of my favorite poems called Gate A4 by Palestinian-American Naomi Shihab Nye. Wandering around the Albuquerque airport terminal after learning my flight had been delayed four hours, I heard an announcement If anyone in the vicinity of gate A4 understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days. Gate A4 was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor wailing. Help, said the flight agent. Talk to her. What is her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. I stooped to put my arm around the woman and spoke haughtingly. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been canceled entirely. She needed to be in El Paso for major medical treatment the next day. I said, no, we're fine. You'll get there. Just later. Who is picking you up? Let's call him. We called her son. I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother until he got on the plane and ride next to her. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for the fun of it. Then we called my dad, and he and she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had ten shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them chat with her? This all took up two hours. She was laughing a lot by then telling of her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She had pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdered sugar crumbly mounds stuffed with dates and nuts from her bag and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mom from California, the lovely woman from Laredo, We were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There is no better cookie. And then the airline broke out free apple juice from huge coolers and two little girls from our flight ran around serving it and they were covered with powdered sugar too. And I noticed my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves, such an old country tradition. 
always carry a plan, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around the gate of light and weary ones, and I thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in that gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women, too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So it is my hope that our love, our love is like that powdered sugar, messy yet shared, perhaps sweet but always nourishing, touching everyone, marking us as those intertwined with each other no matter who we are. Embracing a willingness to love what is strange and unexpected. Sharing that love so that it creates something more than we can imagine. The world that God intends. So friends, let us define love in its foolish measure as God first did for us. Amen. Let us come before God offering who we are and our hearts in prayer. Holy God, when Jesus was asked what is essential, the answer was simple. Love God, love your neighbor. Though we miss the mark in these two endeavors far too often, you love us still. In that love, you have provided all that we have ever needed. You have walked alongside us as we have journeyed through wilderness and valley and climbed to the heights of the mountain. We thank you for the many blessings in our lives and the comfort you have provided when those blessings have been hard to see. We thank you for the clear blessings of this morning, for the brilliant colors of the changing leaves and the ever-changing seasons. We pray, O Lord, that you grant us the same sense of awe that we experienced in our youth. Grant us a sense of gratitude so we might go through each day not missing you in the smallest of details. Grant us the knowledge that you are here with us now, as always, listening to our needs and guiding our lives. O God, we lift up those who live in the shadow of disappointment having seen the promise but not the realization of their lives to come. With yet another horrific mass shooting, this time in Maine. With the destruction of yet another historic hurricane, this time in Mexico. With the devastation of yet another war, this time in Israel and Gaza. We lay before you all who are suffering through all these difficult things happening in our world, in our country, and even in our own lives. Grant all your children a glimpse of your deep peace. O oh Lord, we lift up those who live in the no longer but not yet. Those who have worked so hard to leave behind a toilsome past for a future that's not yet realized. We give you thanks for the communion of saints gathered here and happening now in this place knowing that you have called us, each one, to be the church. We offer our hearts in joy and thanksgiving 
for the blessings of Ed and Gilly. Lord, we lift up those who live with the weight of responsibility, having carried the burden of another person's pain, for the women and men who care for others, children and sick, elderly and challenged. We lift up those who live in the darkness of loneliness, having to survive a torment that cannot be explained. Hear the names of those that we have lifted to you, Carol and Sam, Suzanne and Jeff. Hear also the names that we now offer in silence. Lay your holy hands upon them, O God. But lay your holy hands upon us as well, empowering each one of us that we may be the church, the one body for them. Help us. Help us to love you. Help us to love them. For all these things we offer in full assurance, knowing that you hear every word that leaves our mouths. And yet, for all that we have not named, but which you know, O Lord, we trust that you will hear our prayer in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the Presbyterian Church, in the Reformed tradition, we do not believe that our worship is complete unless we offer back what we have and who we are to the God who's given it all. So trusting in God's providence, let us now share our lives. Let us offer all that we have, all that we are to the Lord, our time, our talents, our lives, and our offerings.